to the book of Matthew in chapter 25. In Matthew 25, we continue as we hear from the faithful writer Matthew of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And the title of this message is Christ the Faithful, Christ the Faithful. And this morning we'll be looking at two parables, that is, truths in picture, truths in simple form, two parables this morning in Matthew chapter 25 and verses 1 through 30 is our text this morning. Please follow along as I read in your copy of the scriptures. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps were going out. But The wise answered saying, since there will be not enough for us and for you, go gather to the dealers, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered truly, I say to you, I do, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it into the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent into the ground. Here you have what is yours. 
But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten. For everyone who will who has will be given and he will have an abundance but from one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth thus says the word of God let's pray together Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Father, open your word to us this morning that we might behold the wonderful words of life. We might in them see a Christ who is like a fountain flowing deep and wide, whose door is open today, who is calling unto everyone, that if they will go through the narrow way, they will find life everlasting. But crowded is the broad way that leads to destruction. For many are seeking their own way, but we have found Jesus to be true because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And, oh, Father, may this passage be to us who have found him to be the way. May it be to us an encouragement and, and in, in your will, likely a rebuke that we would be busy doing the things that the Master would have us to be doing until his return, that we would find ourselves faithful, that he would find us faithful doing things that are pleasing unto him and finding us ready. And Father, we come with ready hearts this morning and we, we pray, we hang on every word of yours. So speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Notice the Savior motif taking place in these two parables. Christ is shown to be the head, that is the the bridegroom, and the master and the host. And really everything in both of these parables about leadership is about him. Jesus is not the subservient. When we got done reading in the last chapter, remember from the weeks gone by, when we got done reading about Jesus not knowing the time of his coming, we felt a bit like there was an emphasis on his servitude unto his Father's will. But he explains, as Jesus explains further in his coming, we realize that Jesus is not only a suffering servant, although he is a suffering servant, He's not only a suffering servant and he's not only a submitting son and he is the eternally submitted second person of the Trinity. But he's also nothing less than a sovereign savior. In these parables, we see quite clearly that Jesus is the initiator. He is the host. He is the judge. He is the head. But also remember that both of these parables demonstrate the nature of the kingdom that's found in the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Not merely a relationship, but something expansive and something particular and ruling, even though it's very personal. Something bigger than you and I is going on in these passages. Something immense, something as big as God, and something powerful and weighty, and it seems expansive in the sense that I use the word universal. It is big. And Matthew is putting these parables in here back to back, and he allows us to see the expectant heart of Christ. Have you ever expected anything? Have you ever anticipated something so greatly? I was thinking about this, and uh, coming up in a couple weeks, 23 years ago, um, Jennifer and I will have been married. And I remember the great anticipation of that day, of riding in the 1926 Dodge touring car away from the wedding ceremony. That was a highlight. I was even expecting to be with her in a greater way. But so much about that day was just made me nervous and excited and anticipatory. Oh, to have her in my arms. Oh, to finally be hers and for her to be mine. Such anticipation boiled in my blood and, and was driving every moment. I couldn't think of anything else so too in this passage can you hear the thump, 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 thump of Christ's heart as he says, I don't know when I'm coming, I don't know the hour of when I'm coming, but let me tell you, when I come, it is in great celebratory fashion and it is full of accountability and it is immense. Be ready for me when I come because I am so ready to receive you unto myself. Do you hear the heartbeat? And Matthew puts these parables in here to help us understand just how much Jesus anticipates the culmination of our deliverance and salvation. Jesus is relishing the opportunity to come and receive us finally unto himself. And when Jesus comes, he comes bearing gifts of love. Now, likely you've heard teaching on this passage before, but just to remind you that in, it seems that in early Jewish tradition, while we don't know all of the rituals of a Jewish ceremony, there was a period of time uh, that was a betrothal time, like we see in Mary and Joseph's life, where the two were committed and they were, in fact, married. Although they had not spent the night in bed together to consummate the marriage, it was a marriage in every full sense. Matter of fact, in, if we think of it as engagement, that's just our more modern and American way. It's very cultural to us. But to them, it was, a, it was a marriage. And as a matter of fact, if you were to cut off that betrothal period, it would take a formal divorce to do so. So there was a period of time where they would remain separate from one, from one another as a means of showing their faithfulness to one another since it had been an arranged marriage. But also it was a time of proving, approving not only of chastity but in faithfulness, but a, a proving of provision. And, and the bridegroom would go out, he, he would prepare the place to receive his bride unto himself, usually around where his, his own home was. Likely he would build a room, an extension onto his father's house and would get everything ready and it would, be, it would be less than a year, although it could be up to a year according to tradition. And when he was ready, he would come with his groomsmen and he would make a fanfare through the streets Likely there had been a herald or a runner ahead who had told her 
hey, he is coming, and he might come in the middle of the night of all times. Why? Well, because it was ready, and he didn't want to wait one more second. And so he would go to her, and she would send out all her all her bridesmaids out into the streets to watch, and they would they would have lamps at the night time. And uh, they were virgins in the sense that they were her friends, they were her peers, they, they hadn't experienced marriage yet, and so they were excited and anticipatory for this whole event, and when he would come with his men and there would be the girls waiting, they would watch in, in celebration and in excitement as he would walk through the town, the torches would be lit, and everything would be a great affair of the town and of the village of the families. He would receive her, he would gather her into his arms and then walk back through the town and bring her as a trophy back to his house. And everybody would be excited. So this, this, this wedding party had grown, it had swell, swollen, it had swelled, and he had made provision for a feast back at the house and those who would walk through the town with him and arrive in the house would be, enter into the feast and the door would be shut. That was the people that he knew and that was the people that she had known, the people that were accompanying them through the town. And so the picture is here as this, this groom is coming in through the town that there are ten young ladies and five of them went prepared into the town for his coming. In the middle of the night, they knew it might need, a, they might need light, but also to add to the festivity of the situation. And I want you to notice, first of all, in this passage, that again, emphasizing as, as Christ is surely in these parables, that Jesus is at the center of these parables. I want you to notice that Jesus Christ is a charitable Savior. He is a charitable Savior. He loves his bride and he welcomes her wedding party. He has come to receive his bride unto himself, that which he had promised, and with not with casualness and, and not with unpreparedness, but with great festivity, a display of his covenant love. He will put on this feast, likely the feast will take maybe a week or even longer as they will celebrate together with their friends and family in this home. This feast was a display of the extravagance and the, the kindness of the covenant love that they would enjoy The marked the beginning. This feast would be the beginning of the feast of love that the two would enjoy together. So it's a signal to her. Let's begin joy and gladness together. Let's begin life together in such a way that our life is a celebration of love and of commitment. So the groom would receive her in the wedding party. Notice also when we look at the, the center character in the parable of the talents, talents being a, a form of money, by the way, that Jesus or the master is a benevolent rewarder of the faithful investors. He's a benevolent rewarder of the faithful investors. The, the master comes for the accounting with his servants. He comes ready with rewards. He comes with great anticipation and eager anticipation of rewards. And by the way, notice that when he rewards the faithful servants, the two of them, his rewards are extravagant and bountiful. He says, you have been faithful in little and I will make you ruler over much. 
It is certainly an undeserved reward. While they have multiplied that which has been entrusted to them, he ups the ante in really in a disproportional way, an exponential way, in an extravagant way, in an unimaginable way, he rewards these faithful servants of his. Greater than even the return on their own personal investment, he just displays just really undeserved uh, reward to them. His rewards and in, in the way Jesus tells this parable is meant to really make you imagine that the rewards that these servants get, while we're not told their details, we're supposed to think these rewards are bigger than life. Jesus doesn't tell us all the nature of the reward in which they're given, and, and I'll make you ruler over much. We don't know what all that entails, and, and it's, it's likely Jesus is just leaving it out for your imagination because it's just so big, he doesn't want to limit it to any sort of words that might just limit your imagination of how big the reward is. No one could have expected this great of a reward. The, the men likely thought that the return of their own investment, the five getting five more, that would have been reward enough. But this is shown to us as sort of a hyperbole. It's showing us the extravagance of the reward. And the idea here is that no one will be cheated of their reward and no one will be able to say that anything was held back from them. What they have invested into the kingdom is met with a whole other lifetime, a whole lifetime, a whole eternity of rewards. What could be more than that? What could you imagine that would be greater than double your earnings in this lifetime? But more importantly, what do we learn about the master in this parable? We learn from his dealing with the two servants, at least one lesson, that he is extravagantly benevolent. His first, his first approach towards his servants is wanting to demonstrate generosity. Fellow Christian brother, sister in Christ, we serve an infinitely charitable Savior. He is more kind and more generous than, than word can tell. And imagination can, can conceive a charitable Savior. But we also notice that we serve a committed Savior. Number two, as we look into this passage and we find Christ as the, the main character of this passage, we find a committed Savior. Christ is a committed Savior. First of all, in the first, in the first parable, we find that he is committed to what? We would say he's committed to who? He's committed to his bride. He does come. And he comes with great commotion. He comes with great engagement. He comes as one who there is no doubt that he was coming. The bride was making herself ready and, and her, her wedding party was, was ready. There was no doubt that he was coming. Notice the determination. He is coming. The determination and the finality of his arrival. 
Well, we notice at first the, the great anticipation, the eagerness about his arrival. Notice that there is a determined arrival. I am coming. There is nothing going to stand in the way between me and you. And this is the picture of two lovers as, as one would seek after the other and long for that embrace and, and move heaven and hell aside. The bride will be in the arms of Jesus Christ. He will do everything it takes to receive his bride into his arms. And so he did. And Jesus did. He would die on the cross. He would lay down his life that he could receive his bride purified and ready in covenant love. He's committed to his bride and then the next parable, the second parable, he's committed to I want to say he's committed to his servants. We could say he's committed to that which he owns, you know, his possessions. That could likely be a lesson. But he's committed to his servants. He comes to reward the faithful. He comes back to the servants. He doesn't just come back to do business and to just carry on life, but he, he calls into account the relationship that he has with the servants, we could say in the first parable, we recognize that there is a saving grace that must be received. In the second, there must be a, a grace that enables us to serve. And so in the first parable, we see the saving essence of grace. And in the second parable, we see the demand of service as a response of, of grace. Jesus is committed to his servants. He comes as a rewarder to the faithful. He is even more than what he shared with them when he left. He never abandoned them, although he was gone for a period of time. And it seemed that he was never coming back. And matter of fact, the third servant seems to indicate that there was great doubt in his mind that this master was ever going to return. It seems there's actually a lot of misconceptions that this third servant has come to believe. But that's one of them, is that he would never return, that he had abandoned them. But our Savior is a committed Savior he has never abandoned them, and his relationship is characterized by stewardship and trust. So while the first relationship is built upon a commitment, a commitment of love, a covenant of love between a, a groom and, and his bride, so now in this relationship, we see this relationship is built upon stewardship and trust. And so too is Christ's relationship with those who have entrusted themselves to the saving mercies and grace of Jesus Christ, they are stewarded, we are stewards of that which he has entrusted us with. He never relinquishes ownership. We are stewards, we are managers of that which Jesus owns. He never relinquished his ownership. Even while it seemed that he wasn't coming back, even though it seemed delayed, Jesus never relinquished his ownership. Remember, he owned the investments to begin with, and so therefore, he has every right to hold into account every one of his servants. So Christ is a committed Savior. He's committed to his bride, and he's committed to, to them as they serve him. He's committed to his servants. And the third, the third truth we see about Christ as a central figure in these parables is that not only is he a charitable savior and a committed savior, but he is a coming savior. Jesus is coming for those he loves. 
Jesus is coming for those he loves. There are some who will see Jesus come, as we had marked out in the previous part of Christ's teaching in Matthew 24, there will will be some who, when they see Jesus, will not celebrate his return. There will be some who will not be able to celebrate his return. In the parable of the ten virgins, the five who were foolish were told right off the bat at the beginning of the parable that they were foolish. Then we were told why they're foolish. It isn't because of the nature of their personalities. It's by nature of the preparedness. They are willing to live in darkness. They're not willing to have the light of grace. They're not willing to live in light of truth. And so when Jesus comes, when the, bride, when the groom comes through the town, they're not able to recognize him. They're not able to celebrate. They haven't been ready all along. You notice in that parable of the, of the ten virgins that what was at fault with them as they awaited in town was not that they slept. All of them slept. The wise slept. And the foolish slept. That wasn't the fault. It would be a long time. What else were they to do but to rest? But when the time came, the wise did not have oil to share with the foolish. The foolish had made their choices. They had made their decisions. And one person cannot make a decision for another person. In that time in which Jesus comes, there's no time to borrow faith. There's no time today to borrow faith. Each one will be held into account according to the readiness for Christ. Christ is a coming Savior and he comes for those he loves. And in the next parable, in the parable of the talents, he comes for those he has blessed. Those he made a promise to, but both in the marriage and in the return of the master, I will come and I will take into account that which I have given to you to steward. And all who are ready are involved in the blessing of his return. Notice that both the faithful virgins and the faithful, uh, the faithful stewards are blessed upon his return. Great joy is found in the celebration. Great joy is found in the reunion. Great joy is found in the festivities. All who are ready are, are involved um, in the blessing of his return. So what does it mean to be ready then? If in both of these talents and both of these parables it seems that there, there is a sort of a readiness, a spirit of readiness, then what What is the readiness that Christ is pointing to? What could we say is the essence or the determination of the fate of all of the parties involved in these parables? We could say this. To be ready is to simply take Jesus at his word when he left. Those things which he said when he left 
we take him at his word and that will make us ready. That was the fault, wasn't it? With the, the virgins without oil, they did not take it at his word. They, they, they didn't take into account that they would need oil to, to be part of that festivity. The, the unjust steward and the third servant who buried the talents into the ground did not take his master at his word that he would return and take into account all things that he had entrusted to him. The readiness, the readiness didn't have to do with, with any religiosity. It didn't have to do with, with any sort of activity except that which would be trusting Jesus at the word in which he had said in the first place. Trusting the master at the word in which he had revealed. Trusting that the groom was going to come to fulfill his commitment, his covenant. And so the readiness is what has Jesus said, have I believed upon it? Have I taken him at his word? That's the readiness. And based upon this readiness, there is a concluding incident. There is a concluding event. And so number four, we find that Jesus is a concluding Savior. There is a loving and a celebratory reception and reward. The groom, by the way, is the reward himself for the bride. Sure, there's the room, there's the house in which he has prepared. Sure, there's the provision, the feast that he's demonstrated, that he's able to provide for her and for them as they build a new family. But the groom is the reward. And that is the picture of, of marriage. Each other, you are the reward of love for your spouse. And Jesus is our reward. Heaven is all about our God. Heaven really is God. It is a literal place, but it is God. It is, it is not just about a, a, a utopia. It is not just about a blessed, uh, a, eternal existence without suffering. It is all those things because that's where God is. Our enjoyment and the chief delight of our lives throughout all of eternity will be to be with God. And even I submit to you, as lovely as it will be, and as at peace it will be, and as, as full of a reunion it will be to be with our loved ones once again, heaven is just all about God. So when, when Jesus pictures receiving people unto himself like a groom, you are, that is meant to evoke the images of an embrace, of a love, of, of a steadfast commitment, of an eternal bliss that is to be shared with you. And I, I think that if, if you are here, and, and all of us as we hear of this, and, and we are children of God, we are followers of Christ, I think that, that it probably ought to make us blush a little bit that someone would love us so much. I mean, have you ever had someone just lay out for you how much they mean to you, how much you mean to them, and you're just, you, you blushed? Have you ever looked into the eyes of a grandchild as they gave you a little coloring paper that they drew for you and told you you were the best grandpa, the best grandmother and it just made you blush because you feel so undeserving of such pure and wonderful love. 
And a love without doubt, without any uh, flinching. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus loves you in such a way that if you will, if you will open up the Word of God and explore the extravagant display of love that He has for you, both in His actions and in His descriptions, it ought to make your heart beat so fast and your head just blush because we just don't know how to receive so great a love and could it be that it will be take all of eternity for us to just be able to behold the greatness of his love for us. We right now just don't even have words for it. Although God has given it to us in words that are helpful for us like the word love and like the word more, we just still can't comprehend what is the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. So blush away, brother and sister. Blush, bride. Look into your lover's eyes and behold, he is a concluding Savior. When you see him face to face, we will melt. And that's what the, group, the bride does in this past. She comes to his house and there's a feast. The groom is the reward. On that wedding day, God was kind. God was kind and we had we had gifts galore and generous financial gifts but I wanted Jennifer the groom is the reward the replication of righteousness to be enjoyed is the reward that is in the parable of the talents the replication they took what had been entrusted in them, both in opportunity and in gifts, and they returned it in reward back unto the Master. This is the task of us as followers of Christ. We are to seize hold of every bit of opportunity to live out the righteousness of Jesus Christ and return it to Him in reward for Him. Notice also, not only is he, concluding, is he a concluding Savior in the benefits and the benevolence and in the charity of his love, but he is a concluding Savior in that there is a judgment and condemnation. When the wedding party entered into the groom's home, that is the five who are wise, along with the bride, and the door was shut and the feasting and celebration had begun, the five foolish women came to the door and knocked. And the bridegroom answered. The bridegroom answered and he said, Who are you? For they were pleading with him, Oh, let us in. But he says, Who are you? And we consider this. He wouldn't know who they were. Why? 
but they hadn't gone with him through the village. He hadn't seen them before. They were in the dark. He didn't know them. And on that day, it was too late. In the parable of the talents, with the unfaithful servant, the third one, instead of judging himself, instead of judging himself in the light of the nature of his master, he measured his master in light of himself. And this, by the way, is where the unbelieving world goes wrong. We take what we know about ourselves and we apply them to God. And we picture God to be like us. We allow ourselves to create a theology that's really a meology. It's about us. And we, we superimpose our expectations upon God. And so instead of judging, uh, judging ourselves in light of who God is, listen, we judge God based upon who we think we are. And this is exactly the downfall of the thinking of this third unfaithful servant. He is measuring God in light of himself rather than, listen, measuring himself in light of God. He developed a false perception of the master because he had already begun with a false perception of who he was, of who he was. And everything about him contradicted what he claims to be. He claims to be a servant. And just like these five foolish ladies claimed to be part of the wedding party, in all appearances it looked like they were, but by their actions they demonstrated what was true about themselves by their own nature. The outside contradicted what was on the inside. And that's the difference between the two in this, whether it be the foolish virgins or the unfaithful servant, it was that the outside gave every pretense and every signal that they were the real deal, but when it came time to reveal what was inside, it was not true. It is entirely possible for someone to, to be in what we would call the visible church, to, to claim to be a Christian, to have even received the gifts of grace in the sense of to take communion or to participate in baptism and to be amidst the people that enjoy, as Hebrews chapter 6 says, to taste of grace, but yet never truly take it in. And so in these two types of people in these parables, we have a contradiction. What was on the outside was not truly what was on the inside. This servant was wicked because he attributed to the master what was not true. He attributed to the master what was not true. That's what made him wicked. Okay? It, we, we notice here that there seems to be a, a character judgment, a, a really a moral judgment by the, by the words of the master. Not only does he just call him unfaithful, you didn't do your job, but he actually heightens this, elevates it to, you wicked one. Why is he wicked? Because he attributed to the master what was not true. He showed that he had no real understanding of his master. He was afraid of his master, but not in a way that was a reverential awe. He didn't think that the master cared enough to return, and he didn't think that he would be held accountable for his action or his inaction. 
And so the third slave was not just unfaithful, but he was faithless. He wasn't just unfaithful, but he was faithless. He had no real faith. There was nothing inside. There had never been anything inside. It was all a show. It was all external. It had all the appearances, and everybody thought that he was faithful. But when it came time for the dealing, when it came time for the account, he was faithless, not just unfaithful. He had no real faith, and it became clear. And we look at this passage, and we say, that got escalated really quickly. Notice, notice the words of the master. In verse number 29, for to, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you say, all of that for not hiding, for not investing the talent? Now here Jesus is using the parable and he's turning it into this, he's making it clear. I'm not just talking about management of assets. I'm talking about managing your soul. I'm not talking about your money, but it can apply principally. I'm not talking about opportunity, okay? But it can apply principally. But I'm talking about your soul. Are you seeking after His righteousness first? Then all these things will be added unto you. Before Jesus dies, He's already revealing His return. And that's a necessary part of his redemption work, is is his return. His return is the culmination of the fullness of salvation. It's the consummation, if you want to put in a picture of the wedding, it's the consummation of the covenant love. It's necessary that evil is ended and the righteousness is rewarded. For salvation to be good news, Jesus needs to come back. It needs to be true. And this is a revealing of the complex and divine nature of Jesus Christ, what we find in these parables. Yes, Jesus is a suffering servant. Yes, he's a submitting son. But by the revealing of these apocalyptic events and the power and glory that Jesus asserts of himself in that time, we find that he's more than a suffering servant. He's more than a submitting son. He's a sovereign savior. Like the wise bridesmaids, prepare yourself by living in the wisdom of grace. And like the faithful servants, be diligent to serve in the interests of his kingdom, not your kingdom, not your castle building, but serve in the interests of his kingdom. Be warned that if you live like the foolish bridesmaids, appearing to be ready for Christ among his people, maybe even here today with God's people, Yet you do not have the light of grace when he comes. There will be no saving grace for you on that day. And sadly, none of us will be able to share it. The door will be shut. 
And be warned that if you, like an unfaithful servant, showing that you did not understand the nature of the Savior and showing that you are not living under His Lordship, there will be no mercy for you on that day. Your life will show that you never really knew Him and that you were living according to your own will and understanding. You will be eternally rejected, utterly rejected from God's eternal blessing with no appeal. When Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote the tales of King Arthur, in, about the tales of King Arthur, you remember King Arthur was returning to his palace in great confusion and heartache because his wife Guinevere was having an affair with a brave knight of the kingdom whose name was what? Sir Lancelot. Tennyson had some words, but what had led up to that was one night while the king, Arthur, was away, his nephew, Mordred, the son of his sister, King Arthur's sister, so the story would go, Mordred moved forward with a villainous plot to usurp the throne, and in the middle of overtaking the palace, Lancelot and Guinevere became trapped in the chamber. It became exposed, the relationship that was going on there. What had ensued was really an accidental or a coincidental discovery of all of this. During the skirmish, Lancelot would kill a few and he would run. And so would Guinevere. And she would run, according to the story, to the Abbey of Almsbury. She would seek refuge. When King Arthur heard the news of the plot and he returned back, sought to return back to the palace, he had gotten a little confused and he had come to believe that Lancelot would be a traitor. It wasn't really, but he was an adulterer. He returned to the palace to make war with Mordred, and then on his way to the battle, he stopped by the abbey to see Guinevere, Guinevere and bid farewell to his beloved wife and queen. And he said words like this to her, as was written by Alfred Lord Tennyson. I did not come to curse thee, Guinevere. Lo, I forgive thee. Do thou for thine own soul the rest. Let no man dream but that I love thee still. Hereafter in that world where all are pure, we too may meet before high God, and thou wilt spring to me and claim me thine, and know. I am thine husband, leave me that. I charge thee my last hope. Now I must hence to lead mine host far down to that great battle in the west where I must strike against the man they call my sister's son, who leagues with heathen and knights, traitors, and strike him dead and meet myself death, or I know not what mysterious doom, and thou remaining here wilt learn the event. But hither shall I never come again, never lie by thy side, see thee no more, farewell. Alfred Lord Tennyson continues to write, and he writes of the words of the regret of sin that hung in the air and strangled all hope from the heart of Guinevere. When Alfred Lord Tennyson writes the next part of this story, he remembers Matthew 25 and the parable of the virgins. He remembers the parable of the ten virgins and the fateful failure to remain faithful awaiting the bridegroom's return. It's too late for Guinevere to regain the trust of her husband. 
And soon her husband will die trying to win back his throne. And Guinevere, as the story would tell, would remain at the abbey the rest of her life. And Tennyson's Mathean words put to song in idols of the kings goes like this. I think it's on the screen. Late, late, so late, and dark the night and chill. Late, late, so late, but we can enter still. Too late, too late. You cannot enter now. No light had we, for that we do repent, and learning this, the bridegroom will relent. Too late, too late. You cannot enter now. No night, so late and dark, the chill and night. Oh, let us in that we may find the light. Too late, too late. You cannot enter now. Have we not heard the bridegroom is so sweet? Oh, let us in, though late, to kiss his feet. No, no, too late. You cannot enter now. If you've been listening to the word of God this morning and considering the fate of your own soul, there is a time coming when you will be no more. And I don't know when that may be. Only God knows. It could be very early and very soon. But when the time comes for you to stand before God and you have not you have not entrusted your soul under the saving care of Jesus Christ on that day. No, no. It's too late. Brother and sister in Christ, we have from now until we see Jesus to serve him, to take him at his word, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness to use every part of our soul in worship and in service to Him, to return to Him the reward that He had bought first. Will He find us ready? Let's pray.